Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. It's lovely to see all of you. Oh, first name basis. Thank you, Elvin. It's lovely to see all of you here this morning. And if you're joining us online, welcome to you too. We're glad that you're here. Well, did you know what the word ascribe means? Does anybody know? Ascribe. Do you know what the word means? Oh, here's your hint. See, right there it is. There you go. Attribute something to or to say or think that something is caused by, comes from, or is associated with a particular person or thing. In Psalm 29, 1 through 2, David uses the word ascribe and writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And let's stand together and let's ascribe to the Lord.
just as a reminder, an elder and a prayer team member are available if you'd like prayer during worship this morning.
be seated. So I'd like to share a Bible story from 2 Kings, and it happens to follow last week's floating axe head story, if you heard that. This one's probably a little more popular than that one. But 2 Kings 6, 8 through 18 in the NIV, and the words will be up there. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. Well, none of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men, to, men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. And I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Dothan, Dothan, not sure. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Have you ever felt like the whole world is against you? Nothing seems to work the way you have planned. It feels like everyone has either left you or is against you. I've had those kinds of times in my life. And although during those times I didn't see God and wondered where he went, he was there. God was in the love and the kindness of some wonderful people who cared. I just wasn't maybe opening my eyes or maybe just was, couldn't see. And this is what Elisha was trying to get his servant to realize. It's what we need to lean into today. It's not time to give up when we are surrounded. It's time to look up. We have to remember to take our eyes off the enemy that is surrounding us or the storm that we are in the middle of and look to God who is surrounding all of our circumstances. The only way to take the power away from our problems is to give praise to God. He is with us and he is for us. There's a table that you've prepared for me in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and your blood you shed for me. 
taught you this one last week. Holy forever.
Well, let's offer praise to the Lord. Yes, Lord, you are holy forever. Let me ask you to stand up and greet one another. And please, if you don't know the person sitting beside you or next to you or in front of you, introduce yourself. Say to them, my name is Rick. No, don't say my name is Rick. But my name is Rick. Great job. My name is Rick. <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on in the world today. You've been reading about uh, the floods and everything that's going on in California. Man, I'm glad I don't live in California. I really am. And we've got everything that's going on in Ukraine. Just all over the world, there's just so much happening. Let's just take a moment and let's pray. Father, there is so much pain. There is so much heartache. There is so much destruction. Just an awful lot going on in our own country and around the world. Father, our prayer is for those who are going through these types of experiences in their lives, whatever they may be. Father, many of them know you, and we pray that in the midst of their pain and sorrow and issues and problems, that, Father, they will look to you and know that they are surrounded. But Jesus, for those of you who do not know you, we still pray, God, that some way, somehow, you would bring a level of hope and comfort and peace to their lives, even in the midst of tragedy and destruction. Father, we thank you as we've done many times before, that we don't have to invite you to be with us. We don't have to beg for you to be with us. You never leave us. You're always there. You always surround us. So, Father, we look to you and thank you with grateful hearts for all that you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple of things. Change for change. Uh, any of you who do not know what change for change is, if you have change in your pocket, you want to put it in the little bucket back there. This month it's going to go toward Vacation Bible Adventures Mission Project, and that has been decided. It's going to be House of His Creation. So uh, that's where that money is going to go. The adult class Holy Lands will not be meeting today due to a meeting following the service. We would like to get your feedback on some things. 
And so if uh, you are a part of this congregation or coming on a regular basis, uh, we would invite you to stay. Uh, feel free to visit with each other for a few minutes after the service. Uh, but immediately after the service, fairly quickly, we'll be having a meeting just to talk to you about some things and get a little feedback at that point. If you feel like you need to leave, then obviously feel free to do that. But we'll be grateful for those of you who will stay. Um, if you signed up for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, please check your mail slot. There will be an information in there as to the place you will be going, not who owns that place. <laughs> You'll have an address. You may or may not know who belongs to that address. So, Oh, next week's the address. Okay, so what do they have this week, Deb? Oh, what to bring. Okay, so you have what to bring this week. Next week, you have the address. I guess that way you can't look it up in the next week, so that way it's just kind of a surprise. All right. So it's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. And let me encourage you to mark your calendars for Good Friday, 6.30 p.m. Uh, we don't always have a Good Friday service. We usually have something happening here on Good Friday. We're going to have a Good Friday service. If you are not normally used to going to a Good Friday service, let me please encourage you to give serious consideration to coming. Uh, I happen to be a part of the group that's planning that meeting, that service. All I can tell you is it is going to be an extremely meaningful and powerful service. If you miss it, you're going to hear people talking about it on Sunday. And you're not going to know what they're talking about. <laughs> and you're going to say, why didn't I go? I'm just saying, that's a possibility. So give some consideration to it, because it's going to be a really good service. And now we're going to have a really good message from Tony and Joanne. <laughs> that's us. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for showing up an hour early. <laughs> for our 8.30 service. <laughs> uh, you, you, are you as energetic as usual? I'm dragging, so you're going to have to help me out here. Give me, give me lots of feedback. I had extra feedback. coffee. So, <laughs> I have good. my caffeine. <laughs> anyway, have you ever met someone so different from yourself, so mysterious in some way that the encounter changed you? Perhaps when you met a future spouse or looked into the eyes of a first child or a group of people with some strange customs and ideas and you weren't sure what, uh, who they were and what they were doing. 500 years ago, when people from Europe and the Americas met each other for the first time, encounters like that must have been bewildering. Here's a description I found online in one of those. On an otherwise ordinary autumn day, shortly after sunrise... The Arawak inhabitants of the Caribbean islands noticed strange ships sailing on the horizon. As these ships moved closer and closer, they saw strange-looking people with light skins aboard those ships, making odd gestures. These strangers offered the Arawak red-colored caps, glass beads, and other curious trifles. In exchange, the Arawak brought what they had, parrots, cotton skeins, darts, and other items. 
For the Arawak and the strangers looked at the world from opposite angles, and both were fascinated by what the other was not. Mm-hmm. Well, today's message is similar to that. It's about first encounters that were even more life-changing than meeting Columbus and his crew. That's what that story was a description of. These encounters we're talking about today initiated the rest of, oh, excuse me, got to do my Paul Harvey voice, the rest of the The story story. (laughs) that we mentioned in our last message, the grand cosmic story that we find ourselves in, the one that started way back at the beginning and is still uh, what God is doing in the world. We're not the first persons, of course, to tell this part of the story. The gospel writers did. And so today we're going to look at what was recorded in the first chapter of the gospel of John. Now, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to let the story speak for itself. Rather than giving you four or five points or seven or nine or whatever we do around a theme, (laughs) which is normal here, we're going to actually tell and open up the story. We're just going to work our way through it. Not every verse and every word, but picking out key words and phrases and parts of the story and Mm -hmm. help you see what we see and invite you to see for yourself and, well, perhaps more. Actually, what you're going to see here, if we do this the way we've intended, is you're going to see a glimpse of how Joanne and I actually work together when we prepare, how we put these messages together. We We just talk our way through, Yep. and we thought, instead of putting points in things, it's it's a journey of discovery every Friday when we put these things together. We would invite you into that journey of discovery. What you will not see is when we're convinced that the other is wrong. Right. <laughs> How do you see that in there? Anyway, okay, let's start How with the story. John you chapter say one. that? Yes. <laughs> John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It sounds familiar to us, and every Jewish reader of John's gospel would have immediately recognized those three words. The first three words of the creation story in Genesis 1. Yep. So John is talking about encounters in his own time, but he's starting the story way back there, which ironically is for the same reason that we did too in our last series. Thank you for hanging in there through that. We called it in the beginning. Right. Parts one, two, three, four. We just kind of developed that uh, uh, every week, which looked at those early chapters of Genesis. So John is starting way back there in order to bring us up to what's going on in his own time. Now, we all know what comes next after these three Mm -hmm. words, right? In the beginning, God. But John doesn't go there. Mm -hmm. And here's your first sign that, ooh, something interesting is up here. Instead, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Mm -hmm. Huh? Uh Uh-huh. The Word? What's that? And what does that mean? Well, the Greek word used here, logos, is a complex word. Joanne's going to explain it more in a few moments. But it was used by some Greeks in that time period to describe how God had expressed or revealed himself to humans. So it means more than just a spoken word or a word on a piece of page, okay? It's, a, it's kind of a complex philosophical term. And so John uses it in the exact same way. In the beginning was the word. He's talking about God's self-expression or God's revelation. And then he goes on to say, he's not disagreeing that in the beginning God, but he's saying in the beginning, and the word in the beginning was with God and actually was God. Yes. He was in the beginning with 
God. So he's actually affirming in the beginning God. He's just extrapolating a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the rest of that here a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Genesis 1 says that God spoke things into being. And here we see that God's expression, exp self-expression, it's not just language. I said this a minute ago. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's so real. It's so tangible. It's a person. God revealed himself so we could know him better. And the revelation of God is also God. Okay, this, this gets a little bit complex, uh -huh. but it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. It's yep. a mystery, yep. which is why we call this, this message a mystery of oneness. Yep. But it's the same mystery, and it's the same God that we encounter back in Genesis 1. Yep. That creative, self-revealing, plural God. Plural, but with one voice and one will. Who said, do you remember this? Mm -hmm. Let us make humanity in our own likeness and image. Yeah. And so John is giving us a picture of the same God in that same beginning. And that's just the first two verses. Yeah. So, <laughs> as Tony just said, that Greek word, meaning word, is logos. So, for the Greeks, whose word it is, it's Greek, logos was related to this universal divine reason, the big, huge, eternal picture, uh, creative order, right? So it was, Lagos is what the Jewish community had identified centuries before John was writing, centuries before as Tav, right? So we're connecting back to the, the first series this year. This is what Tav is. This is the inherent goodness, Lagos. The inherent goodness of God's original design in creation and beyond. Um, John's gospel, then, is revealing a remarkable thing. And for Jews, a very blasphemous thing about the Lagos. That in the beginning, John says, all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. In the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. Okay, now, remember, our theme verse for this year begins with um, that cry of faith, of uh, it, Israel, of the Jewish community. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So right away, there's some questions. You know, and this is what we do. We just say, hey, but wait a minute. So if God's one God, Jews and people thinking along with them, one God? Okay, is many, but wait a minute. Who is this Lagos then? Who is this word through whom all creation came into existence? Who was life itself? And not only life, but who was the light of all humanity? And who not only spoke, let there be light, but was the light? See, in the original Genesis story, if you remember, light is distinguished from darkness. But everything was tov, right? Everything was, was very good, including the darkness. So, again, right here in the beginning, by saying the light does not, what darkness doesn't the light extinguish? Because there's a darkness that's tough. There's a darkness that's good. 
the darkness in which we sleep at night, the darkness in which babies gestate in wombs, in which seeds germinate in the ground, the darkness in which caterpillars are transformed into butterflies in their cocoons. But as we saw last week, because of the separating consequences of sinful natav, human choice, a darkness was created that had nothing to do with God. A willful blindness, right, that was not tav, that refused to give and receive love as God does. This is the, the nature of sin. And along with it, the darkness, the blindness, the deception that came along with that, that we saw the two who once they ate of the fruit, something happened to the way that they saw themselves, each other, God and the world. Right? There's a darkness that chose instead to create a world in its own likeness and image, full of pain and needless suffering, just perpetuating on and on and on like ripples we talked about last week, Perpetu or two weeks ago, the dark separating consequences of sin and death just rippling out throughout the rest of the Old Testament story. And yet here we are with John's gospel. And John is assuring us that the darkness of sin and death could not overcome the light and the life of the word, of the logos. And then John continues the story. Mm -hmm. Now, what we want you to notice, so far he's telling the same story that yep. we did in our last series. He's doing Genesis 1 through 4. Yep. We haven't got to the new encounter yet. This is all repeating, and it's through his lens. He's seeing it in a little different way than we've normally seen it. Mm-hmm. So John continues with this story of what God is doing in the world after, after sin is introduced. And it says, he was in the world. And the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Mm -hmm. Now, I have always interpreted that passage as referring to Jesus. But John hasn't introduced Jesus to us yet. That comes later. Uh -huh. What we figured out as we were looking at this this week, this is still referring to the Old, story, Old Testament story. That God is still present in the story with his people throughout that whole experience that's recounted mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. God walked out of the garden with Adam and Eve. He did not abandon them or their children or the many generations that followed he was not just up in heaven watching it all and frowning disapprovingly all the time. God yeah. was with them even as sin continued to disorder things, even as relationships fragmented. God continued to be present with the people he loved and in ways that they could see. And they talked about this. This is what's preserved for us in some of the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah. They saw him in his creation. Read the Psalms. They talk about that all the, a lot. They saw him sometimes in symbols, like, pillar of, like a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, or in the temple that was created where they could meet and worship with God. Sometimes they even saw him in more personal forms. Mm -hmm. Who was it that Jacob wrestled with that one night? Mm -hmm. Who met with Abraham and Sarah under the trees of Mamre? Mm -hmm. Who was it that kept company with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Yep. We have a song that we sing about that one here. There's another in the fire. That's right. what that story's about. Yep. 
Who was the Word of God to them in those days? God himself was present. Time and again, people were encouraged to hold on to the promise that all was not lost, that they were still loved as God's own children, and that God was at work, that God would one day restore all that had been disordered. Yep. They were encouraged to look around and see God in their world, to see God in their own lives. And not everyone did, of course. Not everybody noticed. Not everybody received God in their presence. But some did. Some found and held on to this thread of hope. Mm-hmm. And they were honored for their faith. Joanne found this poem or knew this poem that William Stafford wrote that speaks poignantly yeah. about this thread of hope. You know, before you say that, you know what I just thought is in Hebrews 12. They were remembered. The hall of faith, yeah. right, are those who've held on to this thread. That by faith. By faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hebrews, Hebrews 11. 11, sorry. Actually, if you look at that, you read these Old Testament saints that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is commending them yeah. for doing exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. For receiving, for seeing, and holding on to that thread of hope. Yeah. Stafford, William Stafford says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. Yep. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. Mm-hmm. It is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. But you don't ever let go of the thread. Mm-hmm. And the thread of hope, the thread of Tove, and the restoration of Tove was held for centuries until the right time finally came for the hope to be fulfilled in the most unexpected and mysterious way. See, the God who had rested from the work he had been doing in Genesis 1 created again. As at the beginning, he created something new something that had never been seen before. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. Do you see that? So John's coming right up into his present moment. He's pulling that story forward and connecting it to what that very brand new thing that God had created. See, he's making a very bold claim. He's making the claim that the eternal divine logos of God was not only present and participating in creation in the past at the beginning, but that that logos also entered creation, being created as a mortal human being in Jesus. This is the mystery of the incarnation, and it deeply matters that the Word really became one of us. Because so many well-meaning people today, even Christians, are willing to settle for a non-physical faith. They say, yeah, look, history, it's not an exact science like 
chemistry or anatomy, we can't verify everything like Genesis 1 with eyewitness observation. So let's just simplify things. Let's not worry about the history. Let's just pay attention to the great spiritual truths that are there present throughout the, all of the scriptures and in the Christian texts. And listen, yes, there is a place for parables and poetry and metaphor and symbolism. I, for once, have stood before you. You know that there's a place for that. There's a place for that truth from Scripture that transcends time and place. But when it comes to claims about Jesus, like this one in John's Gospel, the Scripture simply won't allow us to settle for only disembodied ideas. I want to say disembodied ideas can't multiply bread. They can't raise the dead. They can't die for our sins. And they, exactly. See, the first Christians knew, they knew something real had happened that had never happened before. Something new had entered creation that had never existed before. Something inconceivable before that moment in time had broken into history and changed everything. And they wanted to share that with everyone. So what did they do? They wrote, they wrote about it. They wrote several accounts of what had happened so that everybody who read them would know that this is not yet another mythic story about yet another fictitious God. Luke, one of the other writers, John was one. Luke started his gospel by stating his exact purpose and why, why am I writing this? He said many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word, and I love this. See, every time we put a mess, we, we go through the scriptures, we see something new. They used what the original eyewitnesses and the servants of the word, and that word is logos. Logos. The servants of logos, and that's going to matter in a, in a little bit, you'll see. What the original eyewitnesses and servants of the, of the logos handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully, from the beginning. I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was, but I, I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you've received. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying, look, these claims matter. They're true. Something really happened. And this is, what, uh, this is what this whole book, this whole account is about. And then what does he do? He tells the story of Jesus like a good historian, giving all the details necessary for his readers to check its veracity, the veracity of the story for themselves. He says, in the reign of Caesar Augustus, that's a real person, can be checked out. In the reign of Caesar Augustus, at the time he ordered taxation for everyone in the empire, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, this couple of nobodies from Nazareth, Joseph and Mary, went to Bethlehem, where Mary gave birth to the child conceived not by her husband, but by the Holy Spirit. 
Why is Luke doing this? Wow, he's providing some concrete details for this incredible claim. Listen, that just like the Spirit had hovered over the unformed waters in the beginning, forming what had never been before, that same Spirit had overshadowed Mary and formed within her a child like none ever born before, one who was both God and human. And then John, later on, John's writing after Luke, he picks up on this, and he's declaring that the Word who created all life at the beginning was made flesh in this created world. Do you hear how radical this is? This is radical. He was, the invisible God, the eternal God, was made mortal flesh in, a cre in this created world and that real people beheld his glory. Real other people made out of flesh, saw with their own eyes and touched with their own hands this one and only God-man named Jesus. And here's the thing, it's either true or it's not. Unlike other human religious systems, the foundational writings of the New Testament insist that the center of our faith rest on the reality that the God at the beginning became human in Jesus. And that this reality is not based in legend. This is not made up to make a bigger point. But it is rooted in the physical, historical, divine human being who broke into time and began to reverse the flow of sins, not top history. Are we together? And the reversal kept on going, broken, being born, continued through the story. Luke tells us, historian Luke, he says, in the 15th year of the rule of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler over Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler, ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was ruler over Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I think I had a bad case of Trachonitis last year. <laughs> I know, but you get the point. He's putting all, you, you don't believe this? Go check it out. Here's the details. You can go to these places. Ah, but here's the thing. Inquiring minds want to know. You may be wondering, how can God's word speak to John in the desert when the word made flesh is in Nazareth? I wondered that. Why? So I checked it out. Why? Because the word for word here, that, that the, God's word came to John? Ah, it's not Lagos. It's Ramah. Jesus was Lagos, big, huge, infinite plan of God, all of that, create the creative power, all of it. That's Jesus. The eternal word that is God made human, but God spoke rhema to John. What is rhema? Rhema means, it's a Greek word. It just means specific direction for a specific purpose at a specific time. Here's what I want you to do. Here's information. In this case, the rhema word was 
John, go begin baptizing in the Jordan River. You're, without even realizing it, you're going to be not only preparing the way for the Messiah to begin his public ministry, you're going to meet him yourself. So, how do we know this is true? Well, we just heard by the testimony of those who had had this first-time encounter with Jesus. And now the author of John's Gospel, John, mm -hmm. is including himself. He starts using a first-person plural pronouns. We have seen. We have received. He's including himself mm -hmm. in this. He's experienced something. Yeah. And that's why he's writing. He's writing about what he has experienced himself. And it's not just him. It's the other gospel writers, like Luke, it's Matthew, it's Mark, and it's also John the Baptist. This gets confusing because the author of the gospel is John, <laughs> one of the Johns, and now he's writing about John the Baptist, so John is writing about John. Uh, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the, of the Old Covenant, the, the final one. And John the Baptist, too, the people respected immensely in his generation. He, too, saw with his own two eyes, saw with a deeper sight as well. He looked at his cousin and saw what God was up to in him. Mm -hmm. And John described what he saw to his own disciples, and it's been passed down to us, so we too can hear his testimony of what he's experienced. He told us what he understood about the role that Jesus seemed to be playing in God's work of restoring oneness. The big picture story. So here it is. This is the testimony given by John, mm -hmm. the other John. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm preparing you to hear, to see, to experience on your own people yeah. what it is that God is doing in our own time. And now he says, I tell you, among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. It's not about me. It's about this one that's coming after yes. me. And he is, he is the crux of the story, not me. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. That was typical Jewish hyperbole. But what he's saying is he's deflecting away toward the one who yeah. is the point of this whole story. And, of course, he's also representing the Old Covenant. Yeah. And then the next day, he's there apparently with this crowd, and he sees Jesus walking toward him, uh -huh. and he declared out loud so people could hear him, Hear! You can see him pointing his finger, can't you? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. So we're going to look at some of the ways that people, when they encounter Jesus, how they described him. In this encounter, this is the first one that John uh, records here for us. John the Baptist sees Jesus as the Lamb of God. And again, the Jewish readers would have gotten this immediately. They knew what the purpose of a lamb was. They sacrificed lambs at the temple in order to remove the guilt of recent sin. But John the Baptist senses that Jesus had come to do something more than just that. In Greek, take away, takes away. The Lamb of God who takes away means picking something up and carrying it away. It's what, what I'm going to do with the trash tonight. Mm -hmm. Okay? Take it away. And it's not coming back into the house. Okay? I'm taking it away. And then tomorrow morning, the garbage truck is going to come and they're going to pick up that trash and they're going to take it away and it's going to go to the landfill and it will not come back to our house. Yep. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is here to fulfill, to keep the promise given to Eve that one day her descendant will crush the head of the serpent once and for all. Yes. 
and to destroy the power of sin once and for all. Yes. And to remove that burden from our shoulders once and for all. Yep. So we don't have to carry it anymore. So we can once again be tov. We can be very good. Mm-hmm. Just as God has seen humanity way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. That's what he hears, he's here for. Yeah. And John sees all of that before nearly anybody else does. Yeah. It's like John, the gospel writer, is calling witnesses to, you know, attest to, to testify to the truth of what he's, this blasphemous thing that he's just written. So, yeah, John the Baptist, first witness. And not only did John the Baptist call him Lamb of God, when John baptized Jesus, he's witnessing him. He's experiencing him as the Son of God. And he says so. John testified. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. He's a good historian, John. He's quoting John the Baptist. Got quotation marks. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the chosen one, literally the Son of God, is what it says. So, yeah, John the Baptist is testifying like in a court of law from his own eyewitness experience. I myself have seen and testified Jesus is the Son of God. And, you know, in the scriptures, human beings, angels, Israel, peacemakers, Christians are all called sons of God. But the scriptures designate Jesus alone as the unique, capital S, Son of God, who's one with the Father and the Spirit, right? So the Bible uses this word son in a sense, the sense of like um, being like, or possessing the nature of, resembling, but even more than resembling, like sharing, identity. Jesus is the Son of God in that sense. Although he's fully human, he was simultaneously, right? Also fully divine. I'm thinking, which heresy was it at the beginning? In the first monophysite? There were all kinds of heresies that came out of people trying to understand who Jesus was. The docetism? Is that the one you're No, the of? one where Jesus has two natures, divine and human, but they, they're mixed together. Yeah, the monophysites. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, monophysites. Okay, but see, it, what, and they would go back to this. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus is fully human. This is the mystery. And fully divine. It's called hypostatic union. This is what we do on Fridays. Hypostatic union. That's the term. Two natures. Full and full. And one. One. And he's still sharing, even in the midst of of this mystery of who he is, he's also sharing in the mystery of the unbroken oneness with the Trinity, even though he's got a body now. It's, It's incredible. And then later in John's Gospel, we're told that this title... Um, son of God. This was a primary reason the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus killed. 
because in calling God his father, Jesus made himself equal with God. And you know, the religious leaders, they could tolerate the miracles and the healings. But equality with God could not be tolerated. That was blasphemy. Right? Unless, of course, it was true, which is exactly John the Baptist's testimony. And precisely what got John killed by King Herod Antipas. The powerful political leader who feared John's influence with the people might incite a rebellion. Hmm. That's also exactly what got Jesus killed by Caiaphas and Pilate, right? Too much influence with the people. Too much power outside the structure. Because that's what happens when God breaks into history. To shine light that cannot be extinguished into closed hearts and dark motives of people blinded by sin and benefiting from it at other people's expense. So God uses powerless nobodies to do it. Like we saw earlier, Mary and Joseph, who were they? Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John? And yeah, John's unknown cousin from Nazareth? who all agreed, including Jesus himself, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. The powerful, they felt threatened then, and they still do. But listen, they're only threatened when they can see it's true, when they see it's real. They are not threatened by religious zealots. They're not threatened by all of these harmless religious stories that get told. What threatens them is when something real starts happening. When some nobody they can't control starts waking up other nobodies they can't control. That's when the political and the religious rulers get very, very afraid. And then they start doing some very real things to protect themselves and their system like imprison and execute John, and eventually crucify Jesus. See, but the very fact that they did these things, why am I saying all of this? Because we have got to see that it matters, that this is, this is physical, this is real, this is tangible, and the very fact that the rulers were so threatened that they started doing very tangible things to protect themselves and their system and their power, ooh, yeah, that very fact testifies on its own, doesn't it? They're actually testifying without realizing it to the reality that John the Baptist and Jesus were not fictional characters. And that the Gospels are not fabricated fables. And you know what, I think perhaps it's time for Jesus' followers to again see and testify that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, regardless of the consequences. And not just as a doctrine that we proclaim in church, but as something that changes how we live in this Exactly. Country. If it doesn't bring physical action, it's not real. It's just an idea. It's not just John who testifies about Jesus. Others start encountering him too. This is the Arawaks and Columbus. This is people running up against this new thing, mm -hmm. this different kind of person that they've ever encountered before, and they're struggling to find words to describe what they see in him. One of them calls him rabbi, okay, which means teacher, and he's right. 
Jesus had come to correct the misunderstandings about God that had hindered so many people from seeking and, 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 and seeing him. Yeah. I think we need more teachers like that in our own generation because of misunderstandings about God. Let the rabbis rise. Another one calls him Messiah. Again, a word that the Jews at the time would have understood very well. It meant anointed one. Somebody chosen and set apart for some special purpose. There were a number of messiahs and so-called messiahs, but they were expecting one in particular to restore what had been lost, to redeem God's people from their captivity. And here, here early in John's gospel, before Jesus has done a thing, mm-hmm. Andrew, one of the disciples later on, brother Peter, has already identified Jesus as that one. Mm-hmm. Then there's the third one, Philip. Called Jesus, he called Jesus the one we were told about. I like this one. <laughs> Let's read that passage. (laughs) Philip found Nathanael, his friend, said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That sounds very formal. The one we were looking for. The one that was was in Scripture. Who is it? Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. A specific person. Mm -hmm. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Philip said to him, Come and see. Mm-hmm. You see, there were threads. We talked about that thread of hope. There was that thread of hope throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. Philip knew it, and he saw it. He, he, he now sees it. He gets it. That was about this man. Yes. That promise, that prophecy, that was about him, Jesus. Yep. And what's marvelous here also, I love Nathaniel's sarcastic response. You know what he's saying there? We translate it wrong. Can anything tove? <laughs> come out of Nazareth? <laughs> he might as well have been asking if anything good can come out of anywhere. Can anything Tove come out of Lidditz? <laughs> Mannheim? Lebanon? Wherever you're from. Has sin destroyed it all? Mm-hmm. Has Tove disappeared from the world? Mm-hmm. There are people out there who will tell you that it has. Yeah. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Philip, by the way, does not answer him. He simply invites Nathaniel to do what he has done, to encounter Jesus and see for himself. Yep. So off they go, Nathaniel. And come and see. Yeah, he's like, come and see. Okay, as they approach Jesus, Jesus says, again, John, verse 47, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, he says about Nathaniel. So Nathaniel asks him, where did you get to know me? I don't remember. Have we met before? (laughs) Jesus answered him, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, I love Nathaniel. Why? Because he seems to be the kind of authentic, unpretentious, like, see, just tell it like it is person that I like to be around. What you see is what you get. So you never have to worry about what they aren't saying to you or what they might be saying or scheming behind your back. No, this Nathaniel's just like, he's out. All right, he just kind of says what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And you know what? Jesus seems to love him too. And then blows Nathaniel away by announcing who Nathaniel is and where he was before he came to meet Jesus. And just notice how this story continues to reconnect to the original creation story and the garden. Jesus must have been laughing through this whole thing. There's no deceit in this man who was sitting under a fig tree. Unlike the deceit that was in the serpent, 
who was in a tree, who tempted the first man and woman, who then became deceived themselves, clothed themselves in fig leaves, and hid from God. It's just hilarious, isn't it? I just, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't. <laughs> Unlike those first two in the, that garden, though, Nathaniel responds, you know, yeah, I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> it's like, but you weren't pulling off all the leaves trying to make clothes for yourself. He had this refreshing openness, and he just showed it. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's a new name. I think there's like 10 different titles in this chapter for, for uh, Jesus. So he adds this other title, king of Israel. What we just need to notice, son of God, we just talked about, and king of Israel were both titles for the Messiah. So Nathaniel was testifying from his own experience that Jesus was the long-expected Jewish ruler who they believed was going to come and free Israel from oppression, like Tony just said, and establish God's rule over all the nations. And Nathaniel is genuinely overjoyed. It's like he's like, hooray, the woohoo, the time of fulfillment is here, and I get to see it. The kingdom of God is about to be established on earth, and our enemies are finally going to be defeated. Seeing from where they stand, right? Right, okay. But neither Nathaniel nor any of the other disciples could imagine, they could, had no way to, to imagine the way in which this king was going to bring that freedom and that justice, what his kingdom looked like. This is the way we fight our battles. Exactly. All of the disciples, all, like all of us, they, we see from where we stand. So they're speaking through this lens of the old covenant, of that story, of what they've been taught. That's what they know. Because although Jesus obviously knows them, they don't yet know the fullness of who he is. And he seems to be enjoying that, Jesus. He's still a mystery to them. And yet, they're glimpsing something of the new creation in him. There's something stirring in them, that they're connecting something of the fulfilled promise and hope. So Jesus invites them. He says, come and walk. Come on and walk with me. Where did we hear that before? That's what God did in the garden. Come on, we're going to walk in the cool today. Just come walk with me to see the more that's already unfolding in time and history. The mystery that, that would turn sin's not-tove history upside down and inside out. I want you to come and see. Walk with me. Just follow me. Because you're going to see the wrongs beginning to be righted. You're going to see me rewriting the whole story in ways that are more amazing and real than anything you can even imagine or begin to dream. He tells Nathaniel that he's only just begun seeing. Yep. And these are the last verses in the chapter. Yep. Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? <laughs> okay, well, that, that, that's, that's good. But you will see greater things than these. What's better than that, Jesus? And he said to him, now this is an interesting answer. This mm -hmm. is not what Nathaniel expected. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Wow, the last sentence of the chapter, and it's just packed full of stuff. <laughs> Let me just focus right now on this. One more description of Jesus, the Son of Man. 
This time, after all these titles people have been given him, this is the one he most often claims for himself. He describes himself as the Son of Man. It's not, by the way, intended to be gender-specific. It's simply his way of, of saying that he's one of us. Mm-hmm. He's like us humans in every way possible except for our sin. Yeah. And with this phrase, we see the fullest picture of the oneness that Jesus was. What Joanne was referring to earlier here, becoming human did not change the Trinity at all. It did not detract anything away from his divinity. He was no less the Son of God by becoming the Son of Man. Actually, what happens is he unites God and humanity in himself. Yes. And by doing so... It's not just for him. He makes it possible for us to be one with God as well, which was the original intent long before sin. This is the deal. Jesus shows us in his own life what humanity would have looked like without sin. He's going back to the original story and saying, look at me, I'm the new Adam. This time, we're not going to, we're not going to, sin is not going to destroy the story. Yeah. It's going to be Tove. And let's finish up this expository adventure of discovery. One more thing about these last verses. So Jesus then responds to Nathaniel, right? He's, as he is, he's, he's referring again to something that would have been very familiar to those who are listening and to Nathaniel. He's restor- referring to it's the story of Jacob and his dream in Genesis 28, where it says that, Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on that stairway. Interesting. We're told in, uh, back in that account in Genesis that Jacob was sleeping in a place called Luz, L-U-Z in English. And that word means deception. And it's interesting because Jacob's name means basically the same thing. So Jacob, the self-deceived deceiver, laid down to sleep in deception. (laughs) Okay, there you go. And he encountered the Lord in a dream, and he received a great promise in that dream. Was that a reception? Yes. And then awakened, knowing. He awakened knowing something he didn't know before, that God was in that place the place, the physical, do you see, it matters. And so he renamed the place Bethel, which is house of God, because he had experienced again, again, this is right, he had experienced for himself, this place is a gate of heaven, this this is a place of an open heaven, with a ladder that's connecting heaven and earth. And now Jesus is standing before Nathaniel, someone without deception, and reveals that the dream of his ancestor Jacob has come true right before his eyes. Because Jesus himself is the ladder of Jacob's dream. That's what he's saying. In essence, Jesus is saying sin separation is being reversed, Nathaniel. All of what was separated it's being reunited. I'm the one who restores everything. I'm the one who reconnects heaven and earth. Invisible God, visible humanity, as it was at the beginning and will be forever. Even the angels themselves. 
are being held and sustained by me. He's revealing himself as God in the beginning revealed God's self. Basically, he's saying, I'm saying to you, Nathaniel, what God said to Jacob. Only you're going to see it with yourself. Uh, you see it yourself, not in a dream, but with your eyes wide open. This is no dream. I'm the dream come true. I want everyone to open their eyes like Jacob did and see me. The fulfillment is not just for you, Nathaniel. It's for all who will follow me generation after generation. How do we know this? Again, because Greek is a precise language. And at this point in his conversation with Nathaniel, Jesus shifts his speech. Up to this point, he's speaking singular, one-on-one. But then he shifts to plural. Very truly, I tell you all, plural, you all, plural, will see heaven opened. It's powerful. The first chapter, John, let's summarize. Yep. Offers several promises to those who encounter Jesus. First, that they, we, if we are among that in the group, will see greater things than we ever thought we would. You think the Arawak had a surprise? Wow, Jesus is going to blow our minds. Yeah. We will actually see heaven open up to us. We will receive more grace than we can imagine. Grace upon grace, John said. Seems to be in short supply. Mm-hmm. We will be shown more revelation, more of the word, the self-expression of God than we thought possible. And by the way, also more mystery to confound our minds but awaken our hearts, because that's what mystery does. Mm -hmm. And we will be able to testify of first encounters with new experiences in this unfolding story of God's redemption of the world. It never gets boring. It never gets dull, because God is still at work. Right. The question, of course, to us is whether we will receive this. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. He's come to us. This story is not just for... John's generation. It's not just for the history books. It's an invitation and a challenge to each one of us. Mm -hmm. We can, like people long ago, choose not to receive them, or we can, like Jesus, invited the first disciples to see with open eyes what God is doing all around us. The grace, the glory, the light, the life, if we open our eyes and not just our physical eyes, open the eyes of our heart to see what God is doing in the world. And then we can, if we dare, to receive with open hands the opportunity to become the children of God and live like it's true. Yeah. Because John says that. That's what he gave people, the opportunity to do. We're also invited then to learn with open minds, to be open to mystery and to truth at the same time. Because, well, the mystery is truth. We just don't understand it. Yep. And hope is indeed the thread that we hold on to. And if we do see and receive and hope, we're doubtless going to be invited to testify with open mouths. Yeah. Like the people who first encountered Jesus. With, with awe. Yeah. So without words <laughs> and. To who and what we have seen and yes. experienced. By the way, you're going to want to be here not just for Good Friday, but for Easter Sunday. I'll just give you a hint. Yeah. Because there's something along that line. Anyway. Yeah. So this morning we begin a new series. The last series, as you know, in the beginning was basically, it was a series about the oneness of God. 
and the, the wholeness of the story. This series is One Lord and Savior that we begin today. So we begin with the mystery of one Savior and Lord. And we will continue in this series all the way through up until Easter. One Savior and Lord. And so like all of our first messages in any series, we know we just like fire hosed you. But again, it's not as much about whether you're grasping all the details and the understanding with your mind yet. You will. You can always re-listen to this. It's what are you experiencing? How are you witnessing the reality of Father, Son, and Spirit? But especially for this series, our one Savior and Lord, how are you experiencing him? What do you call him? And to close, and we're going to leave that with you and with all of the invitations that Tony's just given you, we're going to leave that with you for this coming week. Just, just stay with it. Just stay with it. And we're going to close with a, a very profound prayer. It's a simple prayer in its profundity. This comes from Howard Thurman. And I'll read the first phrase of each line, and you can respond if you'd like. You can respond to the second part of each line. All right, so let's close in this beautiful prayer. Lord, open unto me. Open unto me. Light for my darkness. Open unto me. Courage for my fear. Open unto me. Hope for my despair. Open unto me. Peace for my turmoil. Open unto me. Joy for my sorrow. Open unto me. Strength for my weakness. Open unto me. Wisdom for my confession. Open unto me. Forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me. Love for my hates. Open unto me. <laughs> Thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Amen. Okay, Amen. so I got that, so... Ah. Okay, it wasn't quite the same as the one that, okay. All of these beautiful prayers are often adapted and rewritten, but that's the original. And let's just live in the wonder and the mystery this week. Amen? Open unto me, and let's open all of ourselves unto him. Amen?